How do we think about creating space for human beings as these systems evolve? How do we empower people to feel like they can take up space? How do we empower people to feel like they can exist in society in relation to these systems? But also more personally, like, how do I make content that feels like I am taking up space in a way that represents me faithfully? Welcome to How to Make a Science Video. AI change the landscape of YouTube. You're listening to Sophie Ward and Simon Clark. And Simon has lots of experience on YouTube. I have a Psycom Masters, so together we make Simon and Sophie. And do you have some experience on YouTube? I do also have a YouTube channel. But I don't have the master's degree in science communication. That's true, yeah. If you're gonna point out your flaws, then feel free. I'll rest on my PhD laurels. (laughs) Not as impressive. We both make science videos and we're both curious about how to best share science with the world. This week we're asking how will AI change the landscape of YouTube? And to find out, we're talking to... My name's Jordan Harrod. I'm a PhD candidate at a joint Harvard-MIT program who also makes educational content around AI and society these days, primarily on YouTube, but I also post to TikTok, Instagram, sometimes Twitter if I'm feeling masochistic, and any other platform that comes up in the interim. I mean, I've watched your superhero origin video, but how would you briefly say you ended up doing this as your job? Yeah, I did some classroom work when I was in college. I had a friend who happened to be running a a program that allowed undergrads to teach a course on whatever they wanted for people in middle school and high school. And he signed me up without telling me because they need teachers. And so I ended up teaching a course on how to engineer superpowers using biomedical engineering fundamentals. I loved it. The kids are incredible. They're such creative thinkers. They have not been jaded and constrained by academia yet. So a lot of their thoughts and ideas are just things that you wouldn't come up with, I think, in in a normal academic sense. And when I finished undergrad, I wanted to keep doing science communication. I also wasn't sure how much machine learning was going to factor into my PhD and if I was going to be able to pursue kind of more broad public topics that that also interested me. And so I started the channel as a way of getting to learn about these topics and continue to teach even if I wasn't going to be in the classroom and even if I didn't necessarily focus on it for grad school and also to reach a wider audience of people than I necessarily reach in the classroom. Although I do miss working with middle schoolers because I feel like they're, I don't know, a lot more fun. Yeah. And you got into machine learning specifically. Am I right in saying it was because you had a bunch of injuries and you were interested in the machine learning in medical sciences specifically? Um, not quite, actually. So I got into biomedical engineering because I had a lot of blood sugar issues as a kid that we still don't really know what was going on. I was pre-diabetic for a while. I was diagnosed with reactive hypoglycemia. They thought that I might have insulin resistance. My glucose levels seem to be normal for the last few years. So like we don't know what's up there. But it was something that I started looking into in high school because I thought it was... Interesting to see, you know, what are people trying to do to fix this? Like, do I need a new pancreas? And if so, is that something that's going to come up in the near future? And that was what got me into research in particular. Funnily enough, I joined a lab that worked with cartilage engineering Mm -hmm. when I was an undergrad. 
because I was also an athlete growing up. My fun fact at parties is that I've competed in most individual sports at this point. Wait, most sport, most individual sports? Figure skating, tennis, swimming, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, taekwondo. I didn't do track and field. I was really bad at it. I've never been good at cardio. Wow. CrossFit was after undergrad fencing. I fenced competitively. I was on the varsity fencing team. That's wild. And then briefly joined Cornell's Division One NCAA team. And then I was a pre-med engineer and they were like, no, <laughs> you don't have time for this. And I was like, that's fair. This sounds like you're describing a really dope decathlete. You know, yeah. it's, just a, it's, it's a really big assortment of sports. I've done all the sports. <laughs> Only if they're individual, though. If they're team sports, I almost definitely have not done it. But I have a partially herniated disc because of it. And so the lab that I joined works on tissue engineering intervertebral discs, which is the project that I thought I'd be on. And that's why I looked into that particular lab. Okay, cool. Uh, I didn't realize there was such a personal connection there. That's really interesting. So then to go back to your kind of YouTube career, like when you started out, Mm -hmm. were there any specific creators or videos that really inspired you to make things the way that you make them? Or when you first made your first video, at least? I would say not really. I've never been a big watcher of educational YouTube outside of like Crash Course. (laughs) And so when I thought about making a channel, I was really thinking about kind of the Crash Course mode of science communication and educational content online. And yeah, that was the model that I had in mind. I'm trying to think if there were any other people in like the education sphere that I was following at the time, but I don't think there were. Mm. The channel started almost five years ago now. And so I've obviously gotten more ingrained in the community since then but I wasn't trying to copy anyone else at the time Mm. I was trying to have fun with my own stuff yeah good on you for saying that because I feel like I was quite similar when I started and then it was when I started making videos I discovered all these amazing creators but I remember at the beginning feeling so ignorant I was like oh I I don't you know know all of the big educational youtubers like I don't watch all their videos and so I'm kind of relieved that you said that because I was in a similar position when I started as well yeah. I think there's a sweet spot because certainly when I started making videos, there weren't that many educational channels at all. Because I started making videos over 10 years ago. Wow. You know, the, the, the landscape was very Old different. Old Man and, Simon. <laughs> yeah. What was it like in the war, Grandad? When the dinosaurs roamed the earth. <laughs> Back at the start, there wasn't very much. And then there was just about, I don't know, five or six or seven years. Whenever Crash Course started, that was probably quite a defining moment for me. But then now, I don't watch all that many educational creators because it's my job and I don't want to relax by Mm. watching my competitors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like a bell curve of how much of it I watched, basically. Oh my gosh, I completely get that. Yeah, it's like you watch a video and you're like, here's all the things I could be doing. Let me completely change my style to become like this person I'm watching. Yeah, you don't watch them, Simon, you just interview them on podcasts. That's the... (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that works better, though. Because I know for me, at least, like, for people often ask me if I, like, follow XYZ, other creator who works in the AI space, and, like, watch their videos. And I'm like, honestly, I don't, mostly because, like, I don't want to get ideas from them, necessarily. Mm -hmm. I certainly appreciate the inspiration from other creators and things like that. But, like, I think if you follow a bunch of other creators who are very much in, like, the narrow niche that you're in, and you're constantly watching them you kind of run into that issue of like am I just making this video because somebody else made this video and it got like a million views and like that's not my goal yeah Mm. for sure so with all that sort of out the way I mean really the question that we kind of want to ask is how do you approach making a new video and if you want to break that into steps for example what's your first step in making a new video 
there are a couple ways that I think I, I come into video topics. One is whatever my current obsession is. So if there's a topic that I'm super interested in at the moment, then that's probably going to turn into a video in the short term. Another is kind of trending topics. And I should say all of these these categories have overlap. So sometimes the thing that I'm super interested in is also trending. But if there's a trending topic that I think my audience would be really interested in, then I'll probably consider doing a video on that. And then I guess the topic that, or, or the category that has been a more recent pursuit of mine is like, I don't want to say journalism because I don't consider myself to be a journalist, but like a lot of the stuff that I'm working on lately is more doing a lot of in-depth research and like reaching out to people for interviews and and Mm. packaging together videos like that. And that's been a a new and interesting kind of category of videos where it usually starts with, I have a question about XYZ. For example, I have a question about AI music. Okay. How do I get in contact with a music lawyer? someone who works in this industry to, to learn more about their perspective. How do I get in contact with artists mm-hmm. who might have thoughts on that? Do I tweet at Grimes? Like that kind of stuff, <laughs> um, which I did. And she didn't respond. Like Grimes. Oh. Come on, <laughs> letting the team down. I think usually the videos that I make are kind of in at least one of those categories. And I won't say everything goes into Notion. My whole content system runs out of Notion. So just to zoom out for a second here, in case you're not aware, Notion is free software that I think almost every single creator we spoke to uses to keep track of their day-to-day business and and in some cases personal lives, including me. You use Notion? Yeah, including me. In fact, we have organised this podcast on Notion. We're not sponsored by them. We just really like it. But it's software that if you are interested in making YouTube videos, I always recommend because it's a fantastic way to categorise information and find it very quickly. Big love for Notion. And Thomas Frank, who introduced, like, everyone to it. I feel like I should be, like, writing a check to Thomas Frank. And I'm not going to because, (laughs) no, but... I am grateful that I was introduced to this platform. <laughs> yeah, I'm like a, I'm like a month in and it's just blown my mind how much Notion saved my life, guys. Notion saved my life. If Notion was just to disappear tomorrow, I honestly don't know how I'd manage <laughs> like my entire life. My brain has been removed. Yeah. The way I like to think of it is it's like when you enter a raffle and you have like tickets and you have ticket stubs. Like the ticket stubs are in my brain, but the tickets mm. are all in like a big mm-hmm. raffle thing in Notion. That's a good way yep. of putting it. It's a new thing to introduce, you know, the question of like, oh, what's one thing you'd take on a desert island? There's going to be a sudden like influx of people answering, it's got to be Notion. Notion. To sort of to loop back around to something you mentioned before, and in terms of choosing topics, you released a video in March, I think, where you sort of redefined kind of what you wanted the channel yeah. to be like. And in that, you said that you wanted the channel to be about learning how to be a person in a world that's increasingly affected by AI. And yeah, I suppose, what do you mean by that? And when you're choosing topics, I mean, is that like your philosophy? Kind of. So I think that for, I guess, to to back up a little bit, I started the channel in 2018, about a month before I started my PhD. And I would say for the first two years or so of, of making content, I was primarily making 
things that interested me because I didn't have a, a financial incentive. I wasn't making money from it. And in early 2020, right before COVID, I got the Vlogbrothers sponsorship, scholarship, whatever it's called. Yeah, yes. did, did you get yeah. one as well, Simon? Ah, the Vlogbrothers. Let's just explain who they are. They're the internet's uncles. John and Hank Green absolute delights. They are very well-established YouTubers and creators in their own right. Some of the OG YouTubers. Yeah, yeah, genuinely. And they set up this thing called the Vlogbrothers Sponsorship, where they give money to creators to help them make what they want to make, educational creators specifically. And it's like a small cash uh, grant, but it's something that uh, to creators like us, we've both been recipients mm-hmm. of this grant. Uh, it's enough to make a boost to your the quality of what you're making. So I'm pretty sure I spent mine on a camera. What did you spend yours on? I got a laptop. To, oh, wow. Yeah, because my old laptop was really rubbish with Premiere Pro and editing, so I got a new laptop. And I think it's quite a common story with a lot of small creators. They have a good eye for creators who just need that leg up. And I suppose this is our way of explaining, but also saying thank you very much, Hank and John, because... I think I'd be doing my job if it wasn't for you. Thank you, Hank and John. Love you, babes. Mwah. I've had one. Have we all had one of those? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Yay. The Green Brothers have done a lot for oh. educational video online. Now it's the Vlogbrothers section of the podcast. I was about to say, if anything, I need to write Hank Green a check. Yes. Tom yes. can wait. Yeah. But I got that. And then soon after, I ended up joining at the time standard now nebula talent to represent uh, me when it comes to, to sponsorship stuff and i think that i fell into the trap that many emerging content creators run into which is just caring too much about analytics and focusing too much on how is this video going to perform should i make this video if it's not going to be a mr beast 100 million view video or something like that and so i did that for about a year and a half <laughs> And my talent managers noticed that I was getting inconsistent with my uploads (laughs) because I was just not really happy with content I was making. I I didn't want to make it. I was putting it off. And earlier this year, I kind of made a more intentional decision to not make the content that I was making before. And I think that the content that I was making up until that point, kind of for that two years, was very focused on algorithms first. So focused on dissecting, you know, papers and and how they work or doing coding tutorials and things like that. And I think that, first of all, that field is very much saturated on YouTube at this point. If you want like a machine learning tutorial, there's a million videos that can give you that. But the second thing for me was that I was reaching a point where I was like, it's not that I'm not interested in how these systems work, but I'm much more interested in the implications of how these systems work as it relates to actual human beings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I guess the other trigger was the exponential growth of AI releases, especially around language models, where it was like GPT-3 came out and then GPT came out and then Bard came out and then GPT-4 came out. And I was just like, I don't want to make a million videos about like, here's the difference between this language model and this other language model that came out a week ago. Like, I don't care. Yeah, it just felt like there was this sudden wave like I mean I'm not even that into the AI world and it was like I was swimming against the tide of like you know updates and a new one and what can this one do so for you yeah it must have been like how am I gonna make videos that inform my audience about this without getting completely overwhelmed yeah and I think I had been relying on trends for a while and up until that point the trends were more 
diverse. Mm-hmm. There was there was more stuff happening. And it got to a point where I was like, the only thing that I can make videos about for the next three months is language models. And that's just not interesting to me. So like, we're going to do something else. I don't fully know what that something else is, but... I can't keep doing this and I'm willing to take the risk of figuring out what the other thing is. You know what the end goal is of what you want the channel to accomplish, but it's just the methodology of getting there that still needs to be worked out. Yeah, I think I'm still figuring it out. I think that it's not that I'm never going to make another paper deep dive ever again. I don't think that that's the plan. I do think that it reminds me actually of, so the channel was originally called Everyday AI, which was spelled in a way that's impossible to search. Oh yeah, I forgot that was your old channel name, like yeah. Everyday AI, right? It was like every yeah. Everyday AI. Everyday AI, yeah. Oh, I see. I thought it would be catchy. And I mean, it's, it's not not catchy, but like if you're telling people of your channel, then like they can't find it because they don't know how to write it which was my mistake i didn't know (laughs) hey i did the same thing my channel name was based on simon oxford physics and i was like yeah i'm gonna be here forever doing this yep (laughs) in first year stuck with that now i think after i don't know a year and a half or so i changed the channel name because i was just like no one can find this unless they know the exact spelling of this and they don't but b i was i guess i'd always been on camera for my videos and I'd gotten to a point where I was like, no, I do want to be able to make content that's like more about me than about papers. (laughs) And I feel like the next evolution of the channel was being like, I want to be able to make videos that are about me because I've I've talked about like ADHD and mental health and things like that on the channel, but also are more broadly about just like people and the human impact of these systems. And there was an Atlantic article actually that I, I reached out to the author about recently on a woman who's well-known in the AI space who had someone make deep pick foreign of her. Mm, oh, yeah, I read about that. And, like, that's one of those things that I really want to talk about. That's actually something that I've had, like, a concept around a kind of documentary-style video for a while. But I think the the new, not motto, but kind of the North Star of the channel is is how do we think about creating space for human beings as these systems evolve? How do we empower people to feel like they can take up space? How do we empower people to feel like they can exist in society in relation to these systems? But also more personally, like, how do I make content that feels like I am taking up space in a way that represents me faithfully? How do I do that in the first place? How do I make content that I'm proud to put up and that feels like it is representing as much of me as I want to put on the internet, which is not all of me yeah (laughs) but it's more than I had been before yeah I feel like that's such an interesting shift from like chasing what you think like will do well and what the algorithm will want into like okay hang on a minute let me take a step back and think about what I actually want to make and I think yeah that's really important but it can be quite scary but now you've made that shift you know would you say before your videos were aimed at an audience an audience that will hopefully be large and hopefully watch your videos and hopefully give you lots of views now are your videos aimed at a more specific audience has your audience kind of shifted as you've made this decision like who do you think your videos are for now um i guess i would say i think before my videos were for a more technical audience for people who were interested in developing these kinds of systems and now my videos are more geared towards people interested in engaging with these systems. Mm -hmm. I don't think I got more specific necessarily. I think I just shifted my window. Okay, cool. And does that change, do you think, when you're considering an audience for a video now, does the audience that you have in mind change 
video to video or do you just have like a channel audience that you think of? It definitely can change video to video. I think I do have an overall channel audience, I guess I would say. I'm not going to say that I'm never going to make another tutorial video because like, I don't know, I'm, I'm not interested in absolutes. But if I did, it would be a very different framing than, mm-hmm. than the videos that I used to make. If I were to make a, a video of like a code walkthrough and collab where I included the link to the collab file so that people could run it themselves, it would be less focused on like the step-by-step practicalities of like, here's how you implement a neural network. And it would probably be a bit more focused on like, here's how you like analyze your data set. And here's how you understand the representation that your data set encompasses. And here's how, you know, if you wanted to make synthetic data to expand your data set to make it more representative of the general population, here's how you could do that. But also here are the pitfalls of that kind of approach. Mm-hmm. So I think there would be less focus on like, here's how you make a piece of technology without any consideration of like what that means for other people (laughs) and more focus on like what do you want to do with this how do you want to impact people with this how do you not want to impact people with this what do you want to make sure that it can't do and incorporating that into your thought process that kind of sounds like rather than having necessarily a learning objective in mind in terms of whether the audience is going to understand something it's almost like you're encouraging your audience to ask questions of themselves yeah i mean i think i made a video two years ago i think that was basically around how to make ai fairer and and i've talked about this in panels and things like that in the past and one of the first points of that video was ask whether or not you should be making the system in the first place and then the the kind of secondary point that i often bring up on panels related to diversity in AI is that many, many, many systems are developed by homogeneous groups of people who have good intentions but don't have the lived experience to be able to suss out potential problems for our, yeah. for other populations. Did you mean any social media network? Good God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's so much of our modern age is what happens when tech bros don't take a single humanities class, I think. Mm, yep. Yeah, and also when they're all white guys, it's great. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that... Those two things tie together a lot for me where it's like the like, hey, I think that there should be, you know, more diversity in AI from like a, a morality sense, but also like from a bottom line sense, from like developing systems that, you know, are applicable to a wide array of people that like won't get you in a PR nightmare. <laughs> yeah, it's often good to have people who have diverse lived experiences in the room because you might think the the example that I usually bring up in panels is the Nature paper that looked at a software that decided which patients in a hospital would get kind of more intensive care versus stay at the current standard of care. And the system was designed to look at, you know, their medical records and figure out like which of these patients are like more sick who need this higher level of care. And what the researchers didn't realize is that one of the variables in the system was how much this person has spent on healthcare. And they kind of assume that like, well, if you spent a lot of money on your healthcare so far, then like you're sicker, you need a higher standard of care. What they didn't take into account is that people of color spend less money on healthcare because in the U.S., institutional racism and systemic stuff and things of that nature. And so an equivalently sick person of color would not get recommended for this higher level of care because they just don't spend as much money on it. And so those are the kinds of things that I'm more interested in these days. You know, having someone in the room who can be like, well, like... 
how much money they spend on healthcare is a great way of predicting how sick they are. And someone would have raised their hand and be like, uh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. It makes me think, kind of tied into that a little bit. Like, well, a question I wanted to ask you was, when you make a video, what kind of role do you decide to take in that? And I've got a follow-up question to this, but I guess... The first question is, in a video, are you presenting yourself like, I'm an expert on this or like, I'm a curious researcher wanting to find out more? Like, how do you pitch yourself in your videos? Ooh, it depends. I think that the general persona that I try to portray on my channel is like, I'm a researcher who has expertise in these fields, but my word is not law. Mm -hmm. You know, I can be wrong. I might not know the answer to something. Mm -hmm. And I invite discussion in the comments or for you to email me or to DM me or whatever it is, if you have thoughts on this. And there are, I think, times where I lean more into like, I have expertise on this and like, here's me dissecting this paper. And I think there are times in which there's a video that I'm working on right now that I think is going to fall in this category. There are times in which I'm, I'm coming into a video being like, here are my thoughts on this. And like, I'm not saying this as the end all be all of this situation, but I do think that these thoughts are important. And I'd love to invite more discussion and alternative viewpoints on this. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, I think, kind of the range, I guess, in which I work. Most of the time, I would say I'm probably more of the, I have expertise and like, I'm not perfect, but like, I do probably know more about the back end of these systems than you do. And then I think probably a third of the time, I'm more in the like, I'm thinking out loud on camera and I might be totally wrong in this and I don't know. But I do think this is important and I think it's important enough to bet my platform on it. Captain's Log, we appear to be in a star-forming region of space, a nebula. But instead of large, bloated, loud balls of gas, the stars being formed here are very different. They're stars of online educational video making long-form content about science, geopolitics, and video games, among other subjects. That's right, Captain Picard. Nebula is a streaming service owned by a collection of creators, including Sophie and I, that hosts innovative, educational, and inspirational content from some of your favorite video and podcast makers. You can listen to all episodes of How to Make a Science Video ad-free on Nebula, but you can also watch exclusive content from other creators such as Our Changing Climate, Lindsay Ellis, Wendover Productions, and many more. Exclusive content includes individual videos from your favorite creators, but also entire series such as Jetlag and Red Atoms. Get access to Nebula by signing up at go.nebula.tv slash htmasv. That's our special How to Make a Science Video link. And by using it, you can get 40% off a membership plan and support the show. Again, that link is go.nebula.tv slash htmasv. Computer, put Nebula on the main view screen. Engage. As someone who like is presenting science to an audience, I feel like if you show any nuance in your knowledge, that gives people an in to be like, ah, so you don't know for sure. So you probably are wrong. And do you feel like you get that very often? And I was going to say as well, especially in like a white tech bro centric environment, how do you as like a black woman, do you feel like you get like a lot of criticism because of that or people doubting your expertise more? Like, I don't know. It's a big question. But like, do you get a lot of like a lot of doubters, a lot of haters, Jordan? That's what I'm asking. So I guess the short answer is yes. The longer answer is that 
I think I've chosen whose opinions I care about, I guess. So if I make a video that's more me speaking off the cuff about a particular topic and I misspeak on something or I get a bunch of like the, the how to make AI fair video got a lot of kickback. And that's just one of those things where, you know, if I make a video on like, here are, you know, the published works saying that like neural networks amplify bias and that data sets are typically biased for XYZ reasons and that, you know, the systems that are applied to marginalized communities are often developed by people who are not from those communities and have not interacted with them in any way. People who kick back on that are usually not people whose opinions that I really care about that much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and so I'm pretty okay with that. <laughs> How much do you read the comments? Oh, gosh. That's a good question. I think I read them more now than I did probably a year ago. Interesting. Okay. I guess I would say when I was making more technical videos that relied purely on expertise and kind of social proof of my expertise on a particular topic, I didn't read the comments as much because they tended to be more, you know, you're a woman or you're a black person or whatever. And so that is not, you're biased in saying X, Y, Z. I think that in shifting towards making content that focuses more on less technical topics and more human applications, I'll read the comments more and like, I'll still get some of those, Mm -hmm. but I think I've also... I don't know. I feel like the YouTube algorithm is is maybe not recommending those types of videos to the people who are normally uh, shifted into the held for review tab on my <laughs> comment section that I just don't look at. <laughs> YouTube's moderation tools. Do you not look at it? No. Yeah, I feel like I just can't help myself. It's like looking no. at a burning building. I just no, 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 click no, on no, the hell for a view no. and it's like, yowza. <laughs> I do not look at that tab. So I got, I guess, added to that feature before it was public because I got featured by YouTube in a Black History Month promo a couple of years ago and they didn't provide any comment moderation and me and a bunch of other people's comment sections were an absolute nightmare. Oh, and it was a nightmare in in ways that i think youtube's like comment moderation team had not encountered before Mm -hmm. (laughs) so we got early access to the the held for review tab wow yeah you got that last minute protection by getting early access to something yeah well then they were like Oh, yeah. So, like, it's sorted by severity, I guess. So, like, the less bad comments are at the top, the more bad comments are on the bottom. Like, can you let us know if it's working? And I, like, opened it, scrolled twice, and I was like, you know what? We're just going to close that. Let's never look at that again. (laughs) We're just going to, yeah, put a pin in that one. I don't actually need to go down to the bottom to find out if it's bad. I don't want to. Someone else can do that. If you'd like someone else to come onto my channel and do that, feel free. But I'm not going to do that personally. Oh, man. Feels like the Disney Hercules movie. We are swimming to the bottom of the river of the dead, basically. Oh, my gosh. What a great (laughs) reference, Simon. That is bang on. It was like, can you tell me if the comments at the bottom of the list are, like, really, really bad versus the top? And I'm like, I feel like I shouldn't have to do that. <laughs> do you iterate your content at all based on the actually useful? Because, you know, within a comment section, there's wheat and chaff, and there, there is some useful feedback normally. I mean, does that influence how you make content going forwards? Yeah, it does. So I, get, I think the best example is a video that I made two years ago. I just did a Q&A with YouTube, I think, a couple of weeks ago about this. And... So I had originally made a a video on the three, like, I don't know, tech AI books that you should read this year or something like that. And somebody commented that none of those books commented on LGBTQ plus issues. 
And I was like, that's a good point. I didn't see anything in that line. I, I hadn't seen anything in that area when I was doing the research. And maybe I should look into that. And so I ended up making a video on a paper from a couple of years ago. It's about unobserved characteristics and discrimination as it relates to that. And the point of the paper was basically that the queer community or being queer is often an unobserved characteristics that is a characteristic that is not something you can clearly pull from data mm -hmm. in the machine learning sense. And so as part of that video, I talked about my thoughts on sexism and AI as a woman. I talked about my thoughts on racism and AI as a black person. And I thought it would be really weird <laughs> not to talk about my thoughts on like homophobia and, and anti-LGBTQ plus stuff as a queer person. Mm -hmm. And so I think the intro to that video was something along the lines of like, well, if you looked at me, like you could probably predict that I'm a person who was born female at birth, AFAB. You could probably predict that I am black, but you wouldn't know that I'm pansexual. Mm. Like that's just not something that you'd know from, yeah. from looking at me and that's not something that you mm. can predict. And so that was a case of deciding to lean into that a little bit more and let my identity be part of the content that I make a little bit more. Mm. But it was also... I think a conscious decision around like which parts of me am I interested in sharing with the world and which parts of me yeah. am I not interested in sharing with the world. I also hadn't come out to my parents and I didn't tell them that I was making that video until I posted it. And they were really oh, thrilled wow. about that. Wait, really? <laughs> then I you had to call to them. them. <laughs> oh, wait, 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 is that actually how you came out to your parents via, via yep. that video? Whoa, John, that's huge. Oh my gosh. My parents are both subscribed to my channel and so I posted it and then was like, shit i have to call my parents yeah oh wait had you not thought before you posted it oh, you, oh you didn't wait for the text to come through you were like not looking uh, at your phone nervously no funnily <laughs> enough so i have a vlog channel and i did tell my mom that i'd gotten a tattoo because my stepdad has face tattoos so i was like you can't be mad at me but i hadn't told my dad and so I got in, in October and I happened to post a vlog in a t-shirt where I just wasn't thinking about the fact that like the tattoo that's on my my forearm is like very much visible. It's an awesome tattoo, listeners at home. Wait, wait, let's describe the tat. Let's describe the tat for the listeners. Well, it's the platonic solids. So D&D dice. Oh, it's D&D dice. Oi, oi, Simon. You'll like that. Yeah, I know. I was wondering how you were going to describe it because we had this argument in my D&D group not that long ago. Yeah. <laughs> well, they are platonic solids. <laughs> well, I was going to say, if you know what D&D is, then I'm going to describe it that way. But if you don't, then I just say D&D dice. But I had gotten it while in New York on a trip where I'd actually gone to see a Broadway show with my dad the next day. I happened to be wearing a long sleeve shirt and just didn't mention it. And then I posted a vlog where like my arm was clearly visible. And then I did get a text that night that was like, when did you get a tattoo? And oh like, my God. That's out of the bag. Just the issue of being in the public eye, Jordan, you know, and you just can't have any secrets. It's also interesting you saying if an AI like scanned a photo of me, it would probably work out I'm queer from the number of jazzy shirts I wear, the frequency, <laughs> <laughs> frequency of jazzy shirt, you know, length of nails. Frequency of jazzy shirts. These are the Well, the tests. problem is that these models aren't looking at stuff like that. They're looking at, like, the distance between your chin and your nose, which is phrenology. I thought you were going to say my face with another woman's face. I was like, no. that is the sure no, that, that would distance. be... <laughs> Wait a minute, we're on to something here. That one might be easier. <laughs> the sure that distance... The, well, even then, you never know. We might just be friends or sisters mm -hmm. or something or weird. Roommates. 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 Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway... 
<laughs> I guess what I'm wondering as well, John, is there any videos that have like surprised you? Either how well they've done or the audience they've brought in. Have you ever been like, oh, I didn't expect that? Yeah. Loads of them. <laughs> Most of them. No, there's one that comes to mind. It's my most popular video. It has like 500,000 views. It irritates me to no end. It was a video that I made very, very early in the pandemic on basically how AI proctoring works and whether or not it's a reliable way to monitor students. It's final season, and many of you are probably studying for your exams right now. In fact, I have to go back to studying for mine once I finish filming this video. But in an era of online learning, our exams may look a little different. Instead of using tiny desks in lecture halls or sitting in classrooms, we're getting more take-home tests and online exams. And with that has come an increased concern about cheating. After all, there's no proctor or teacher to watch you take the test, right? Oh, exam cheating. Yeah. The problem is that it was so early in COVID that if you look at the analytics, it's very SEO heavy. And all of the search terms are like, how do I cheat on my test? <laughs> so it's like learning what not to do. Yeah, it's people being like, how do I beat the system? And I'm like, that's not what the video is about. <laughs> But it's easily my most popular video. When you consider the success of a video, I mean, that's based on views. But what are the metrics that you generally hold when you're asking yourself if a video has been successful or not? I think these days the first one is just like whether or not I'm proud of it. Mm. I feel like that's something that I've tried to move higher up on my, I guess, hierarchy of things that make a video successful because it was not something that I considered early on. I guess second to that is actually the comment section, at least from the first 24 hours or so, in the sense that usually within the first 24 hours, those are people who are subscribers. Those are people who are kind of part of my community who likely have similar values that I do or are coming across my video because they have similar values. And so getting a sense of that reaction and the feedback on that is a helpful metric. And then... I think that the thing that early in COVID kind of pushed me in, I guess I would say, the wrong direction when it comes to who I was making content for and why I was making content had a lot to do with just like the fact that this had gone from a hobby to a business, to a source of income, to something that I had to think about as it related to my livelihood and things like that. And so there is kind of a background sense of like, I'm not necessarily concerned about how much money a video makes or like how well I convert on a particular video. I'm more interested in almost like a quarterly level of like, who is finding this and like mm -hmm. how much income am I getting from that? These days definitely see my channel as more of a portfolio than my main revenue stream. Yeah, I get that thing. It's like an online portfolio of how you communicate your AI science yeah basically yeah i mean is doing science communication on youtube your end goal then because that implies that it's not like in terms of what what would you like to happen as a result of your portfolio oh no 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 it's never been my end goal oh interesting i definitely plan to keep doing it after finishing my phd i feel like i know too many full-time youtubers and also i don't know have been in therapy long enough to know that like a job that purely relies on analytics from other people is not going to be the best situation for me. You're so real with yourself. I think yeah. I'm still kidding myself that it would be like <laughs> the best thing ever. I have too many people pleasing tendencies to do that. Yeah, well, me too, but I'm just not that <laughs> honest with myself. I need to take a leaf out of your book, mate, honestly. I described the nature of like relying on YouTube analytics and also how 
much RNG there was in the system and described the whole thing to my therapist and his first response was good god yeah (laughs) you know especially in relation to me where I also have a lot of people pleasing issues wow yeah I do feel like in a lot of ways I've gotten lucky in the sense that I have a channel that has grown and that has an audience, but also it's not my main source of income. And so it acts as a place where people find me and then ask me to do things where they pay me more money. Yeah. And so I think that that's been really, really good for me. I also think that my timing accidentally just ended up being very good in terms of like the AI sphere and and what people are interested in paying people for. But yeah, no, I definitely am not interested in doing content full time. I definitely plan to keep doing it after the PhD. I would like to do more vlog channel stuff, do more casual stuff. I was going to say I'd like to do more shorts, but that's me fully trying to appease my partner manager. So scratch that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> shorts are fine. They're just, I need an app that just like I make it and then it uploads it to all the things and I don't have to deal with it yeah, anymore. Yeah. There's like so many different ways to make the same thing. Yeah. So many ways to skin a cat, but you have to skin it a slightly different way each time. I know. I know all of the platforms want shorts and I just don't. I I spent six months uploading TikToks five days a week for six straight months. And now the idea of making short form content is considerably less appealing. Yeah. I mean, I think you've crushed it, mate. External outlets look for is like the subscriber number. And I think we all know that views is maybe a bit more important than that. But you've got like a solid subscriber number to then show to places and be like, you know, you want me to talk for you, but still therefore get to do what you actually want to do I think you just killed it and at the same time that shift away from doing things that you think are going to go viral or like tie into whatever topic is topical your shift away from that to doing what you actually care about I'm proud of you not to be all therapizing but good on you for making (laughs) that shift you know honestly a quick question I mean you've literally just made a video about this so I'm sure you could talk about it in quite a lot of detail but I just wonder if you think AI is going to completely change the video landscape science video landscape the YouTube landscape because everyone's like I can write scripts I can deep fake my face I can make thumbnails but actually is it going to be a thing? So I think that it'll be a great tool for creativity I think it is a great tool for creativity it's how I currently use it I have played with enough workflows to do the thing where where you like have chat GPT generate a video and then like deep fake the video or whatever and then have AI make a thumbnail. Mm-hmm. You can certainly do that. At least where things are right now today is... Uh, 26th of June. I feel the need to date these things because sometimes podcasts and articles come out like one to two months after I yeah. say something and it's like, yeah, this totally isn't going to happen. And I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah. things have changed. But at least right now, I don't think that, especially in the video space, there's been a lot of, I guess what, I don't know if you'd call this organic content, but kind of like purely AI generated content that has been good from a viewer perspective. I don't think I've seen a lot of stuff. Like there was a movie, I think it's called The Ghost, that used AI a lot in terms of creating the film, in terms of generative video. There have been people who have used platforms like Descript to do voice cloning, to do voiceovers. I haven't seen anything that's like AI wholesale where I've been like, yeah, I really enjoyed watching that video. (laughs) So I think that there's a lot of interesting creative uses for it. But at least at the moment, when it comes to AI, like purely wholesale generating video from concept to upload, I think the human factor is still important. 
And I guess I would say I, I certainly didn't go into making my channel considering whether to have a faceless channel. It never occurred to me to not be on camera. But I do feel like if you are someone who is on camera, then like the fact that you are a real person will always give you a leg up over something else. Yeah. We finish these chats by asking our guests the same five rapid fire questions. Starting with, if I were to give you a million dollars, what video would you make? I don't think I'd make a video. I think I'd just like invest it and retire. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's a fair answer, you know. Does that mean I don't make a lot of videos that cost that much money? I'd buy a bunch of Boston Dynamics robots and like make them do something cool. But also that company already does that. I'm pretty sure I just like invest it and maybe make a cool video for like 100K, but like not use the other 900K and just like. (laughs) I love that. I feel like that's like such a real answer. Okay. So next question. What one change would you make to YouTube to improve the site? So in OG YouTube back like I think in 2008, something like that. You used to be able to DM other creators. And I know that the way that we do that now is like through Instagram or Twitter or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I do think it would be cool to have a way to connect with other creators on the platform instead of having to go off platform to figure out how to do that. That's a great answer. I didn't even know YouTube had messages. Yeah, I had no idea. Wow. So you'd slide into the YMs. (laughs) <laughs> the YouTube messages. I, I think they were just called YouTube messages, yeah. Oh my God. Next question. What do you think educational video is going to look like in 10 years' time? I mean, I guess I wonder whether YouTube as a platform will still exist. I hope that it involves more storytelling that is specific to audiences, I guess is the best way of putting it. I think Crash Course and things like that are amazing. But as I've done more work in science communication and public speaking, I feel like the thing that's been very apparent to me is that like a lot of the time, even if you think you're speaking to a specific audience in your content, in the US at least, there's like a huge audience that like just doesn't get marketed to because they aren't people with a lot of income. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same here yeah. as well. And so they aren't a profitable audience. And, and so I'd love to see more incentives, more interest, more focus on, on that. Interesting. Very, yeah, very cool. Yeah, I think that's a really good, really good answer. Okay, so this next one, other than the three of us on this call right now, who is one creator you think everyone should watch? Mm. Uh, Michelle Cara. I've been watching her since she left BuzzFeed and her challenge accepted videos are incredible. (laughs) Like the stuff that she does is crazy and I think she's amazing. Yeah, I feel like she's a great creator to follow when it comes to like, I don't know, I guess challenge videos that aren't, I don't know that privilege is the right word, but I think she gets into like the raw day to day, like the mental health impacts of these challenges and Mm -hmm. what it means to do these kinds of things and the ethics and morality and things like that, as opposed to just like I trained for, you know, three months to like run an ultra marathon or whatever, which is also cool, but I think she does it better. Oh, cool. And then the final question, accepting people on this call and also accepting videos from your previous answer, what's one video you think everyone should watch? Oh my God, this is bad. Great. The Try Guys Try Laser Hair Removal. (laughs) (laughs) I'd gotten my second laser session like the day before that video came out and it was so funny to watch. 
That's going on my watch later playlist right now. Yeah, this series so is going to be a great source of you. It was the thought that went into that and then you were like, I know, there's only one answer to this. I was sitting there like, what's the video that I think everyone should watch? And then I was like, there aren't any like deep ones, but there are like real funny ones. <laughs> So this was a really interesting conversation with Jordan. What do you think your main takeaway from it was? I think it's always important to talk about including people with a range of experiences in science. Like Mm. some examples that Jordan gave about, you know, we can assume certain things if we don't have people from a range of backgrounds getting their take on it. And I also think this is really important for science communication. We need a range of people sharing their science so that they can reach a wide range of audiences. And something that I think a lot about is the importance of lived experience. Like, I've got a brother who's autistic, the value of his voice in science, in, like, autism research and stuff like that. So I think just this idea of we need to broaden the number of people that we're including in science and science communication alike. Yeah, because I feel the conversation around the importance of having people in the room in science has been had, and I think that's a very important conversation. But the similar conversation around science communication Mm. is maybe lagging a little way behind. Yeah. And it is important to, you know, at the end of the day, we're when apes you know we we like seeing monkeys that look like us and it's a barrier to entry if you are a person from an underrepresented group in science communication because the people talking about this subject you know might not look like you or might not talk like you and it makes you less likely to engage with that subject and i think as well what's really important is rather than just being like oh we need more black people in science communication recognizing the value of their experiences and their voices and paying them that i think it's so easy when you're from a not easy expected to be an ambassador exactly it's like your ambassadorship is just part and parcel of the fact that this is part of your identity or part of who you are and not only do we need to say yeah these voices are important but also well show them that show the value yeah financially if you value me pay me literally that and i just think it's always a really valuable thing to talk about what about you simon what did you take away from the chat Um, I think something that Jordan said that resonated with me was this idea of how you portray yourself as a researcher in science communication versus how you portray yourself as a researcher doing research. Mm -hmm. Because as Jordan said, like, it's not the same person. You are playing a persona, really. You're playing a role when you're doing science communication. And it's something that I think I did to a lesser extent when I was making content about doing my PhD. But it's interesting that all kind of communication is a performance at the end of the day. It's using the same techniques as fiction, including crafting roles Mm. that are designed to elicit a particular emotion and to get particular, you know, information across. And portraying yourself truly as you are in a research context is not necessarily that useful when you're talking to a different audience. Because you were doing your PhD when you first started doing your videos. So that's when you were still in a research context. Is it something Yeah, that and, and I think I perhaps changed the way I made videos and changed the language I used because in order to be taken seriously as a researcher, you have to use certain terminology, you have to behave in a certain way and structure. For example, if you're giving a talk at a conference, there's a very set structure you're supposed to use. And I think that influenced the way that I made content in a negative sense. And I think it took me a little bit of time, less time than Jordan, to kind of step out of the shadow of that 
in a way. I think Jordan's got a very clear head. And it's, it's very interesting listening to her talk about how important it is to be aware of how you're presenting yourself. Mm. Like I said, she's got a lot of fingers in a lot of pies. Like a clumsy baker. <laughs> That's all for this episode. Next time, we're going to be talking to... My name's Rohan Francis. I'm a cardiologist, but I have a YouTube channel called Medlife Crisis, particularly for, for a lot of young budding science communicators coming straight out of university or even school. I hope they spend most of their energy trying to make content and trying to actually hone their skill rather than worrying too much about all these kinds of meta things to begin with. I think the most important thing you can do is just practice and do as much as you can. Thanks again to Jordan for joining us. You can find out more about her at youtube.com forward slash Jordan Harrod. Thank you for listening to How to Make a Science Video, a Nebula podcast. The producer was Simon Clark. Our music and editing were provided by Fergus Hall and our artwork by Lizzie Fiorkowski. If you enjoyed this episode, please do recommend the podcast to your friends and rate us on your podcasting service of choice. Thank you.